The following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today we bring you international news, Ukraine, national news, State of the Union, but we lead with local news. Local for me in New York, but beyond the city, Oswego, Rensselaer, the entire Finger Lakes region, because former New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo is back on the air, and he has a case to make. Here's some of a commercial he's airing throughout the state making that case. We'll read you the tagline first. It ends by saying, political attacks won and New Yorkers lost a proven leader. The claims are presented in the grammar of political ads, contextless phrases flashing on the screen here, sound bites heard there. The case against Andrew Cuomo appears to be crumbling. The prosecutor says, unfortunately, the filings in this matter are potentially defective. The New York State Attorney General may have turned a blind eye to crucial details. According to the prosecutor, there was exculpatory evidence. So the voices you heard were Rachel Maddow, Dan Abrams, Dina Dahl of Law and Crime Daily of the Law and Crime Trial Network. Yeah, I don't know either. So is it accurate what he's saying? Well, it's not inaccurate. All of the criminal cases against Cuomo did fall apart. However, let's consider this New York Times assessment of the ad. Quote, the 30-second spot that began running Monday on broadcasting cable splices together recent news snippets in an attempt to misleadingly convince New Yorkers that the entire misconduct case assembled by the state attorney general, Letitia James, against Mr. Cuomo had crumbled since he left office in August. Yes. Yes, this is Mike. We're outside the quote. Sometimes people say end quote, but not me. I just say yes. So I am sure that Team Cuomo would like to convince New Yorkers that the entire case fell apart and is unfounded. But if you stick to the four corners of the ad, such as they are, they do really only concern themselves with the criminal cases. Four for harassment. One was the Manhattan DA looking into nursing home deaths. And all of those cases were dropped. And not because of the cooperation of Mr. Cuomo or admission of wrongdoing or, you know, any witnesses went missing. All the prosecutors decided they were unprosecutable cases. Now, the New York Times cast suspicion on even that portion of the ad. Quote, don't worry, guys, I'll do the end quote on the way out of this one. I've learned. Quote, Though a handful of county prosecutors have declined to press criminal charges arising from the report, as the clips in the ad indicate, several of the prosecutors also said they found the allegations that Mr. Cuomo had harassed women or groped them without their consent, quote, credible. Now, here's where I part with the Times. The DA of Nassau County, for instance, did put out a press release saying she thought the accuser's account was credible, but she couldn't bring charges. That's because the alleged actions, even if Cuomo fully corroborated the story, they weren't a crime. Icky if confirmed, maybe worse than Icky, touching a state trooper on the abdomen and hip, but simply not a crime. The Westchester DA made a show of calling the accusation she investigated credible, saying in a statement that although the allegations and witnesses were credible and the conduct concerning, we cannot pursue criminal charges due to the statutory requirements of the criminal laws of New York. Makes it sound like he escaped justice on a technicality. What was it, a statute of limitations thing? No, I mean, it was a statute thing, simply that Kissing a person on the cheek, even if she didn't like it or want to be kissed, simply isn't a crime. 
One of the kisses also involved a state trooper. So once again, in the category of ew, if true. But you can't prosecute someone for doing something illegal. And I question if we in the media should be obscuring that underlying issue the issue that he didn't commit a crime by emphasizing that he was credibly accused of not committing a crime. So yeah, Andrew Cuomo would like everyone to take away from that ad, my God, Cuomo did nothing wrong, when the ad really purports only to show that Cuomo did nothing criminal. It's a political argument, not a legal one, and perhaps worth noting is that there is a political race for governor this year, with Andrew Cuomo still eligible to run. On the show today, I promised you national, that State of the Union spiel. Joe, yeah, he was fine. It was Rashida, who was really noticeable. But first, the Ukrainian city of Kherson, according to its mayor, has fallen under Russian control. At the same time, Russia's 40-mile convoy seems to have stalled. Ukrainian resistance fighters and regulars are thwarting the Russian assault, but they are far outmatched. The question is not, will Russia lose in a day or in a week? It's... Can Putin ultimately win? Charles Kupchin was a senior director for European affairs on the National Security Council in the Obama White House, also served under Clinton. He is now a Georgetown professor and a GIST guest up next. In a conference call to reporters, an administration official said, quote, we shall respond to Russian actions in Ukraine by providing political and security assistance to Ukraine by bolstering NATO's overall reassurance efforts, both in NATO territory and beyond NATO territory. That call did not take place today. It was in 2014. The speaker was Charles Kupchin, who served as special assistant to the president and senior director for European affairs on the staff of Barack Obama's NSC. Now, shall we say, Professor Kupchin is a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, and he teaches at Georgetown. Thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Mike. Having flashbacks? Lots of flashbacks. I feel like I, I, I lived through this, maybe perhaps in... Uh, less dramatic fashion, but uh, been there, done that. By invading Ukraine in 2014, you can assess if it was a success or failure from his perspective. Didn't Putin cast the die in terms of the kind of stance that all Ukrainians would take in 2022? Didn't he essentially radicalize the population and turn them against him? I think the answer to that question is yes. And that when historians look back at 2014 and again at 2022, they will ask the question, who lost Ukraine? And it's an easy question to answer. It's Vladimir Putin. Why? Because Ukraine is a country that has historical links to Russia. Eastern Ukraine, many people there are Russian speakers. They watch Russian television. They feel close to Russia. But what has happened since Putin went into Crimea and fostered a separatist uprising in Donbass, eastern Ukraine, that has killed around 14,000 people, he's united Ukrainians against Russia. 
And now that he has invaded the country big time and seems to be closing in on major Ukrainian cities, including the capital, Kyiv, we are seeing unbelievable Ukrainian resilience, the country coming together to fight street by street, house by house, a Russian invasion. Uh, and that's why I think in the end of the day, once the dust settles, this is not going to play well for Putin. What does he have in mind as an endgame? Does he really want to rule over 44 million seething Ukrainians? This is not going to work. But before the dust settles, the dust will be unsettled. So what do you expect in the next few days or weeks? A total, a total um, takeover of Ukraine? I'm pretty, pretty forlorn and pessimistic about the situation. I think the Ukrainians have, have fought back remarkably well, incredible fighting spirit, but the Ukrainian military isn't a match for the Russian military and Ukrainian resistance won't be able to turn back a column that we hear is about 40 miles long heading south toward Ukraine. So my, uh, toward Kyiv. My, my best guess is that on the surface, Putin will be able to achieve his near-term military objectives. And that means going in to major Ukrainian cities in the eastern part of the country, probably enveloping and then going into central Kyiv, perhaps toppling the government. What I don't really know at this point and don't want to speculate about is, does he also go into Western Ukraine? Uh, it's a big country. Western Ukraine is much more European oriented. It's Ukrainian speaking, not Russian speaking. He will face a much more difficult task if he goes beyond Kyiv and the Dnieper River into Western Ukraine. So that's one question I think remains out there in terms of the actual military unfolding uh, of the conflict. Now, so from what I've read about the Obama administration stance, and some of this comes through the lens of current members of the Biden administration who want to portray their current president as being on the more hawkish side of things. Um, so that's maybe not the most accurate binary, but you, from what I understand, were on the less hawkish side of things back then. Uh, tell me if that's fair or where you were and if you changed in terms of things like arming the Ukrainians. I wouldn't say I was less hawkish. I would say that I took a different perspective about the best way to proceed. And that my view was that to escalate the conflict militarily plays to Russia's advantage. As a consequence, we should play to America's advantage and the advantage of America's allies, which was the economic realm. And that's because in the military realm, Russia has an inescapable military advantage. Its military is much stronger. It's got a border with Ukraine that runs more than a thousand miles. We have a strong desire to support Ukraine, but we're not going to go to war to defend Ukraine. That's why Biden said several months ago, no combat troops. We're not going to war with Russia over Ukraine. So it was my judgment that it was best to play to our strong suit. 
And that strong suit was economic sanctions, political support, but not arming Ukraine in a way that could potentially escalate the conflict. And what about now? They have Stinger missiles, they have Javelin missiles. Is that to the good, do you think? Yes. I mean, now, I, I, now that Russia has bared its teeth and invaded the country, uh, I'm fully supportive of efforts to arm the Ukrainians and enable them to, to better defend themselves. My main concern back in 2014 was seeing an escalation of the conflict that would not work to Ukraine's advantage. Now that, you, that, that Ukraine is under attack by the Russians, yes, we should be giving them as much capability as we can to help them turn back the Russian invasion. It is proper strategy for the United States to increase the costs on all fronts that Vladimir Putin, no matter how isolated or, it, let's say, irrational, if not uh, mentally affected, and we can talk about that in a second, you know, for him to feel the costs is certainly within the United States and the Ukrainians' interests. Do you think he will begin to feel the costs? I think he's feeling the costs uh, in, in multiple dimensions. Right. One is that I think he's surprised by the level of Ukrainian resistance. Russian soldiers are dying. The Russian advance into the country has not gone as quickly as he thought. Let's let's see what happens in the coming days. But this is this is a serious fight. Two, the United States has taken the lead in imposing very serious, severe sanctions on Russia major devaluation of the ruble. Now we're looking at freezing the assets of the central bank, and the central bank needs those assets to try to prevent an economic collapse. Major sanctions against the export of technology to Russia. That's going to kick in over time as Russian companies can't get semiconductors and other things that they need to produce electronic goods. Uh, yeah, so this, this is really hitting hard the Russians in a way that I don't think Putin expected. So let's go back for a second to Putin's mental status. How much should it change our strategy? Don't you still have to deal with him as if maybe he won't respond to the same incentives or disincentives as he used to, but you still have to, you know, pretty much call the same game plan as if he were paying? Until we have evidence that he really has lost his marbles, don't you still have to act as if he'll respond to the incentives as a rational person would? Nobody knows, or at least you and I don't know, whether Putin has begun to go off the deep end. I've heard from individuals who have, who have met with him over the last few months that he is kind of in the bunker, that he's more emotional, that he, he, he's, he's different than normal. And I, I have no way to judge that, that assessment. But I, I will say this. I do think that average Russians are having second thoughts. We see people protesting in the streets. We see their daily lives getting more difficult. And I also think that Putin's inner circle must be getting uncomfortable. 
I mean, he's treating them dismissively. They must be asking, is Putin furthering our collective interests? And they may be very narrow collective interests like my yacht, my private airplane, my apartment in London, or it could be the broader interests of Russia. But on both fronts, a kind of grassroots popular opposition and the institutional structure of Russia turning against Putin, uh, I, I don't think either of these possibilities is, is out of the question. I think it's unlikely. I mean, Putin rules with an iron fist. But to your question, does this change our strategy? I think the answer is no. Let's say the oligarchs decide, no, it's no longer in our self-interest. He's not serving us. What would a move against Putin look like? Well, you know, Putin is not Kim Jong-un. That is to say, he's not this absolute ruler who presides over a flat institutional structure. Putin is an, is an autocrat. He has amassed power around him. But Russia does have institutions, right? It's got a, a, a security service, a military. He's got a national security. There are other players here. And I think what it would look like is some of those key players quietly getting together and saying, this is not working. Our leader seems to be moving in a direction that is in the interests of none of us and, uh, and, and, and not in the interests of Russia. And again, it could be a combination of self-interest, their personal wealth, their personal assets, or it could just be a judgment that, but that Putin has bitten off more than Russia can handle. And then you're looking at some kind of regime change from within. Probably, I wouldn't call it a, a coup because that would involve the military, but perhaps people coming together and just saying Putin's clock has run out. Again, not holding my breath. I don't think that when you and I talk again in a month, this will have happened, but not out of the question. But don't those people see themselves as a modern-day von Stauffenberg if they try this? I mean, they're not just putting maybe reputations or even fortunes uh, at stake. He's jailed and destroyed powerful oligarchs. Aren't they afraid? Sure, they're afraid. And that's why I wouldn't bet on this outcome. Uh, Putin has created a kleptocracy in which the people around him benefit handsomely from doing what they're told. So it really would take a collective turn, an agreement among those in Putin's inner circle that they are better off getting rid of him and moving in, a, in another direction. You are in touch with uh, Russians of different social strata. And I mean, I've heard you talk about this in interviews and at least the ones you're in touch with. So a self-selecting group, someone who would uh, have the email of Barack Obama's former NS, one of his former NSC advisors. But they're appalled, uh, I've heard you say. Yeah, I have to say that, you know, I had multiple regular conversations with Russians over the last few months. And they kept saying, He's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. 
This is coercive diplomacy. It would be crazy for Russia to invade Ukraine. And then I would turn on my radio and Biden and his advisors said, Russia's about to invade Ukraine. We have intelligence. The decision has been made. And, and I felt like I was schizophrenic because one, one person's telling me we're about to have a huge war. The Russians are saying not gonna happen. And I wasn't sure whether the Russians I was speaking to were sincere or not, but I think they were sincere because they are now devastated. You know, I, I you know, just to tell a quick anecdote, I was, I was watching the invasion unfold and then around 1.30 in the morning, I turned off the TV and was, was about to go to bed and I got an email from a very high ranking influential Russian, three words. I am devastated. And that spoke volumes to me because it said to me that, that they, they really didn't think this was going to happen and they are, they are not on board. Now, is that consequential? I don't know. It goes back to what you and I have just been discussing, and that is, could it be that the elite of Russia turn against Putin? Maybe, but don't bet on it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that does lend me some optimism for daylight that there is some room to maneuver among these elites in Russia. That could be. I mean, I, I think a, a lot will depend, Mike, on what unfolds. And the, you know, I, I have a sense in my own mind of what the next week or so will look like, and it's not good, right? We're going to see urban warfare. We're going to see the envelopment of Kharkiv, Kiev, other Ukrainian cities. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing here, unfortunately, that we may see the toppling of the government. But then the big question is, what, what then happens? How does Russia, after it installs a puppet regime, govern over a country that wants nothing to do with Russia? That's the key question in my mind. What's the end game? Where is this going? And once that picture begins to be clearer, I, I can't imagine that many Russians, regular folks in the street, as well as Russian elites, won't say, this is not on. This was a bad decision. Charles Kupchin is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as special assistant to President Barack Obama, and he teaches international affairs at Georgetown University. Thanks so much. My pleasure. And now the spiel. The State of the Union was expected. If I and the last 10 learned people I heard opining about the State of the Union before it happened, if we all put our predictions in a lockbox and opened it today, you could, depending on the ordering of the paragraphs, have come up with the exact State of the Union speech that we got. 
And that's okay. We hired Biden to be normal. His laundry list of policy objectives, figures in the gallery to illustrate his points, the worked out beforehand ovations were exactly the norm for the State of the Union. Normal means you revert to the norm. Not to say that States of the Union speeches aren't Inherently weird in some ways. I mean, here we have adults, capable, high-achieving adults, booing, actually engaged in the plosive B followed by the rush of breath to emit a boo over an observation about the Trump tax cut that was not just a defensible observation, but just actually pretty anodyne. Like the $2 trillion tax cut passed in the previous administration that benefited the top 1% of Americans, the American Rescue Plan... What did Manny Ramirez just step up to play at Yankee Stadium? Boo. Bad tax cut. Boo. There are a couple more abnormal things of note. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. I have no additions to that sentence. They are a few abnormal things of note. Boebert was heckling at one point. But the other abnormal thing was the response. No, not Boebert's response and not the Republican response. Kim Reynolds of Iowa gave that. There was also this odd response to a Democratic president's State of the Union. I'm a lifelong Democrat. I'm also part of the Working Families Party because I believe that our government must put the needs of working families first. Rashida Tlaib, Democrat Michigan, sorry, Working Families Party Michigan, delivered a response to a Democratic State of the Union, which led with the fact that she's a Democrat, just like the guy who just gave the State of the Union. Tlaib is part of the Progressive Caucus, or 100 members of that. Some of them aren't really that progressive, but she is a member of the squad. They're all really progressive. She was an original four member of the squad. And in delivering her own response, she broke with precedent and to some extent decorum. Tlaib didn't heckle from inside the chamber, but in terms of party, her calls were coming from inside the House. Now, Rashida Tlaib didn't excoriate the president in her response to the president. In fact, she portrayed her and her fellow progressives as fighting for his agenda, for build back better, fighting for it more than anyone else. She, of course, left out the fact that she and the other members of the squad made up the six votes against the infrastructure bill, which is the number one policy item Biden and the Democrats or non-squadial Democrats need to emphasize in order not to lose the House as badly as they might otherwise. Tlaib at times seemed in her response to actually be yes-anding Biden. Biden throws out an idea. And Sherrod Brown says it's time to bury the label Rust Belt. It's time to see the, the what used to be called Rust Belt become the, 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 the home of a significant resurgence of manufacturing. Tlaib offers a rebranding suggestion far pithier than Biden's. Imagine turning the Rust Belt into a Green Belt. Of course, when metal oxidizes, it usually turns green before it rusts. But I just said she built on Biden. I didn't say she built on Biden better. Even when Tlaib undercut a major point of emphasis in Biden's speech, she didn't do it head on. Biden got fellow Democrats on their feet with a rebuke to the idea that Democrats want to defund the police. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. 
the thing is, some Democrats like Cori Bush and Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib do want to defund the police. Tlaib phrased her policing policy more gently than by using the three-word shibboleth, but it's clear what she wants. We can't police away homelessness, poverty, or mental health crisis in our country. Care, care, not more criminalization is how we ensure lasting safety for all. So recast the police, decruel the police, it doesn't matter because even the phrase defund the police changes according to the speaker or the audience or the forum. And that way, defund the police acts more like a piece of propaganda than a piece of policy propaganda wielded by both sides. When Cori Bush, she's been the most vocal, just flat out saying, well, sorry, Nancy Pelosi, I do want to defund the police. But when Cori Bush or the other member of the squad or some other members on the very progressive side of the Democratic caucus say defund on the police, it means something like certainly invest in non-policing tactics, but it also means give police departments less money. Tlaib believes this. She's not afraid of saying so, but her fellow Democrats are afraid of her saying so. Sure, they bemoan media exaggeration and Republican demonization for advancing the notion that Democrats want to defund the police. But another factor is that while there aren't many Democrats who want to defund the police, there are in fact a few Democrats who do want to defund the police. And they're not getting attention because... The media is sensationalistic or corporatized or lazy. It's not unfair that these Democrats who want to defund the police are getting all the attention. These Democrats who do want to defund the police, who are getting all the attention, get all the attention because they do primetime State of the Union responses specifically designed to get attention. Now, will defund the police, will that decide the midterms? It will not. Notice before when I was talking, I didn't say Democrats need to do this in order to keep the House. I didn't use the phrase that they needed to do this to keep the House. I said in order not to lose the House as badly as they otherwise might, because I really think the statistics, these surveys, the science shows that is the best Democrats can hope for. They're going to lose the House, I do believe, by what margin is the question. I think Rashida Tlaib can announce herself as a new Black Panther or could hold up a copy of Hayek's The Road to Serfdom and announce she's applying for a spot on the Club for Growth. That wouldn't matter. Democrats will lose the midterms. I don't, however, that binary question, I don't think that's the standard to judge if she hurts the party. Did she hurt the party? It didn't help. However, the State of the Union, as an actual in-person address, it's not a law. It's only a tradition, and a, a newer tradition than the filibuster, which even Biden wants to scrap. So some norms are made to be broken, and I wouldn't expect a self-described activist and champion of the voiceless to hesitate to break such norms. Why would extremely vocal critics of the usual ways of conducting politics possibly care that the State of the Union usually doesn't get an in-party rebuttal. In fact, Rashida Tlaib wasn't the only Democrat to offer a State of the Union response. Speaking for the Congressional Black Caucus, Colin Allred gave that group's first State of the Union response. That group is all Democrat. It caught approximately 0.001% of the flack that Rashida Tlaib's did. Does Tlaib's response weaken the Democratic Party? Yes, but they're so weak that it's hard to notice. She and the fellow members of her squadron don't primarily identify as Democrats. They don't see the point of compromising if they're going to lose. And now they figure, 
the Democrats are going to lose, it's better for them to make it known they didn't compromise. Tlaib's response was a break in the tradition of what has been established, but it's entirely in line for the anti-establishment ethos of progressives who think they need the party a lot less than the party needs them. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the coal handling and grievance chairperson for United Steelworkers Local 1557 out of Clareton, Pennsylvania. She's also the coking and heating grievance secretary for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash thegist, umperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>